Hey, 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 happy Sunday, everyone. It's time to go live with Weightless and Mind, Body, and Spirit with Dr. Carol Penn. And we're going to come on with our beautiful theme song, our countdown. Are you ready? Your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see you going through your paces, it's amazing. Weightless. No matter what people say, you're full of greatness. Time you open up your eyes, you work courageous. If only they could see you going. Open up your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see you going through your paces, it's amazing. Well, hello again, and welcome to Weightless in Mind, Body, and Spirit with yours truly, Dr. Carol Penn, triply board certified in osteopathic manipulative medicine, family medicine, and obesity medicine. I'm also your master movement meditation and mindset coach, three-time best-selling author, so proud of my book babies, Meditation in a Time of Madness, a guidebook for talented teens, tweens, their parents, and guardians who need to thrive, and the journal of the same name so you can live and lead and have your most magnificent life. And I am so excited today as we step into this month of October where our theme is strength. And we have had some already super dynamic special guests. Last week, we talked all about the Native American community and the U.S. imperial education system. And some of what came out in that conversation is the impact that that his system had then on mental health and downstream many generations later. And so I would be completely remiss if I didn't have a show on mental health because mental health is really the topic. It is the issue of the day as we are experiencing rising numbers across the globe and most significantly right here in the United States. So today's guest, our very, very super friend and special guest today, you know her. She's been on the show before. She's just going to have to be a regular and that's our very own. And I'm going to bring her on so you can see her beautiful face right now. And I want people to go ahead and drop in the chat, say hello and where you're from. But let's welcome 
Dun, 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 dun. Dr. Erica. So we know Dr. Erica. She is a doubly board certified, Harvard trained psychiatrist and adult and in child psychiatry. Very, very important because we see we, we have we've got mental health issues from conception right on up. And, and we know that. We know like some of these things actually get transmuted right there in the womb. She, oh my goodness, since the last time we had her on, she is now a podcaster. Hello, hello, hello. And of course, you know, Weightless in Mind, Body, and Spirit is also a podcast. So I want you all, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and subscribe to Weightless in Mind, Body, and Spirit. You can listen anytime at your convenience, wherever you listen to your podcast. Dr. Erica is also a medical mogul where we know each other from. She's a graduate of the class of MMA 20. And we are both now, we're kind of taking a little time away from our monetize your medical degree conference this weekend, but don't tell anybody. I'm going to bring Dr. Erica on so she can just really further dazzle us with her updates. I want to, I want you all look, I'm not going to let her talk until you all promise me right now, get in action. You are going to go prescribe to her prescribe. You're going to subscribe. Wrong hat, Dr. Erica, wrong hat. (laughs) You are going to subscribe to her podcast, betterthepodcast.com. And she's going to tell us all about the focus of her podcast. But right now, get in action, subscribe to betterthepodcast.com and let's welcome Dr. Erica Goodwin. You're muted, beautiful. (laughs) This is what happens when you get muted from the external. You don't remember that you were muted, so... Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to blame it on it being early, but good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such an honor to be here because number one, not only do I love you, you have like the greatest community. So it's always wonderful to get up super early, wash my face, you know, get bright eyed and bushy tailed um, at hours. I would usually be still lying in the bed um, just for you because you, you are so dynamic and your people are great. Quickly, I am Dr. Erica. I'm a Harvard-trained double board certified psychiatrist and now podcaster. I'm passionate about helping people be better, do better, and live better. I do that through my adult psychiatry, my telepsychiatry, even though I see children. I guess you figured it out. My telepsychiatry is adult. My speaking, my books, including my last book, Fix Your Fairy Tale, A Woman's Guide to a Great Life, Love, and Legacy, along with my podcast, Better with Dr. Erica. I do all that to help busy people like you that give and give and give and give some more, but oftentimes feel like either people aren't giving to you or you don't give to yourself with that same type of energy. I do all of that to put you back in your life, and I'm just so thrilled to be here and so honored to have my podcast. Well, welcome. And we have a couple of people that want to say hello. They knew you were coming. So here they're back. Good morning, Linda Parker Edwards. Hashtag Florida is up early and in the house. Good morning and welcome, Brian. I believe Brian is a first time viewer. So excited. Good morning, Patricia, who is a fan. Yes. Nice to be back. And of course, we have our very own Dr. Jaquel, Connecticut's in the house. 
Connecticut and Atlanta in the house. Good morning and welcome Victoria, who's a fan, one of the nation's most outstanding occupational therapists and hashtag the Gambia is in the house. More about that as well. Good morning and welcome Christine, my personal assistant. Yes, yes, yes. So welcome to New Jersey. Welcome to New Jersey. So this is so, and I just saw, I thought I saw Wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah, right, 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 right. Oh, let's see. Oh, yeah. We're now we're saying good morning to each other. Good morning and welcome, Corinne. And from DM, my husband, show's wonderful producer. Welcome back. So we are all really, really, really excited that you are here. And I hope everybody is in action. Drop it in the chat if you've already gone over to subscribe to better the podcast. It's important. It's very important as, as these voices come forward and if it resonates with you, how it helps it resonate with the rest of the world is if you connect, as if you connect. Hey, good morning and welcome JD. This is one of the world's most preeminent musicians. He is a flautist. He is a transformative artist. And we are so glad because we know y'all keep some late night in the artistic world. But here you are up early with us this morning. So this is indeed exciting. And listen, you all just keep inviting friends and family to watch, to tune in. It's on Facebook. It's on YouTube. They can see it and have all the visuals. Or if they want to listen, they can listen at Weightless and Mind, Body and Spirit with Dr. Carol. All right. So let's get on in it. Let's get on in it. So yes. Woo. So here's some numbers. Here's some numbers. So 20.6% of U.S. adults experienced mental health illness in 2019. So these are some of the most recent numbers from NAMI, an organization that we have both spoken for. So that represents 51.5 million people or one in five adults. 5.2% experience serious mental illness, and that represents 13.1 millions or one in 20 adults. Now, the stat for me in my office as a family medicine doc is that one is, is about that represents that first 20.6, about one in five patients that I see is going to be coming in front of me with a mental illness. So I'm going to get, that's going to be a follow-up question. But before that, do you think, what do these numbers represent? Now, this is 2019. Do you think it's higher now that we're going through the pandemic is about the same? So just paint the picture for us. I believe it is higher now and it's going to take a while to statistically catch up because not only did we have the, the baseline issues of mental health that were there, is that as they continue to do studies, just from the stress and the emotional impact of the pandemic, that that itself is causing increased mental health, along with the fact that people are having some increased presentations of depression, anxiety, and even cognitive disorder status post-COVID. So there are a multitude of reasons that I don't think any of us are shocked that we're starting to see even more mental health presentations, even if it's someone that doesn't meet criteria for like major depressive disorder or what we would traditionally call 
access one, which is all the big stuff where people may still be having some symptoms, but may not necessarily have that category, but they're, they're noticing it in their life because there's just a lot of things to balance right now. Yeah. A lot of things to, to balance. And we look also, you know, globally, globally. So when you look around the world, we see, you know, percentages like 10.7% worldwide representing, you know, 792 million people with mental health disorders. So even though when you also look at the numbers, one of the most depressed countries in the world is the United States. What and, and when we look at our least depressed companies, they seem to be smaller islands in the far Pacific Northwest Islands, you know, way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So we're talking about like Tonga and Samoa, places like that. But what is it about the United States where we are such a collectively a depressed society? <laughs> that, hey. that is such a loaded question. Thanks for bringing the fire first thing in the morning. I think it's a few different things that some of these other communities that you mentioned, they're tight knit communities with high levels of social support where people in general feel very connected to each other and that there's a, a spirit of social responsibility for each other. And I, I think one thing that has been become obvious, especially over the last few years, as unfortunately this country is not as connected together, the sense of community is a lot different. Those layers of community that connect people um, just seems broken at times, along with, if I could say it, can I just say it how it is? Yes, please. That the value system, not individual's value system, but what appears to be the overall type priority values in the community are not ones that always support wholeness and wellness. So if the main focus of the society is being able to, is working, working all the time, working some more, working even more, and then more like self-medicating, not as much public health, then I don't think any of us are surprised. Yeah, no, it's it's shocking. And so, for example, right here, so I'm in New Jersey, so New Jersey, New York corridor with, you know, people commuting back and forth, although a lot of that has changed uh, during and since the pandemic. So, for example, tragically, a nurse was pushed to the ground in Times Square, there was a perpetrator running. He was trying to, you know, run away from police. He pushed this. She was an intensive care nurse, someone who serves the public, just, you know, out with friends to to enjoy. And she suffered traumatic head injury. Well, she died as a result of those injuries. And we are seeing more and more reports, people getting sucker punched, people getting pushed to the ground, people getting pushed, you know, into, and, and some of it just like seemingly random, right? Just completely random. Just, they see you walking down the street and somebody runs up to you, punches you in the head, knocks you. What is going on as we're seeing, it's, it's almost as if the fabric of the society is beginning to fray and unravel. It is. I mean, it's, it's literally, we're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. And I, I, I really believe that there is this cumulative effect of the impact of this never ending pandemic on so many levels, 
along with a lot of this violence um, and racial injustice. And for a lot of places, even the murder amounts are significantly increasing, that it's, it's just a lot. Just the overall fear for people's physical safety from an assault viewpoint and also from the physical safety of there still being a deadly virus outside. So I, I really think that's a, a complicated system that everyone has to deal with, um, which is just scary. And then there are different, depending on what your background is, what you've been exposed to, that your, your thoughts behind how safe you felt may be currently challenged. So if you were either in one of the different groups that didn't necessarily feel too unsafe, like nothing was going to happen, or you just culturally weren't taught or weren't taught from your parents to kind of keep your head on the swivel that at any time someone may want to kill you, that this awakening of what's really going on, because it's almost like the veil has been taken off a high level of racism and racial violence in this country, um, beyond the fact that there's still a lot of issues with violence towards women in the LGBTQIA community, that with being able to see it, I feel like that sense of safety is being shifted for a lot of people. Uh, absolutely. And I love that you're using the word safe, the word safe, because so much of what people want to feel is safe. And sometimes they, they can't name it just that precise, but that seems to be what the outcry is. Now, we know that there is a shortage of qualified mental health professionals here in the United States. But we see things like hotlines that are, are rising up. So here in the East Coast, a hotline, New York uh, City Public Health, they have this number, and some people might want to take this down, 1-888-NYC-WELL. So that's 1-888-NYC-WELL. Well, one eight 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 NYC W E L L, and the hotlines are inviting people to call, and once they call, they are triaged in a particular way, and then whatever help can be offered can be offered. So, what do you think about these these kinds of numbers that are being put out there to help the people? Are they useful? Who should use them? When should a person call? I, I think a lot of these numbers are useful and, and I really appreciate the fact you brought out so that we could talk about, there are a few different layers of crisis lines. So there's the National Suicide Prevention Line, which a lot of people are familiar with. And the one thing to remember is, technically you actually don't have to be ready to kill yourself to call any of these helplines. The next is just because you call a helpline doesn't mean someone's gonna show up at your house to take you away to a hospital and lock you up. Um, the next thing to remember is like the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is national. Um, they also have a chat component. So if you're someone that you prefer chatting on a computer and there's also a text component, which is um, where you can actually communicate via text message from your device. There are local numbers, and one of the great things about some of the local numbers, so I'm glad you brought up that one, and in Georgia, um, it's called GCAL, um, which is for the Georgia Crisis and Access Line. And the thing about some of the more local lines is they're plugged in directly with the resources in your community. So sometimes those are a little bit more 
prepared to give you specific resources in your community and may have a better idea of, especially in this time where there are so many people coming into the mental health system. And one of the things I've seen is there are people entering the system that have not been treated by mental health before, that this is becoming kind of that seminal moment, which is shifting them into treatment for the first time. So sometimes it's helpful with the local numbers because they can tell you exactly where to go. But the great thing is you can usually literally go into Google or whatever your favorite browser is and put mental health crisis line or suicide line or anything like that. And you'll get numerous options and you can just pick one. And don't, and one thing to just know is um, you can always, one of the other crisis things is you text a word to 741741. And one of the things I like to tell people is you're going to see that numerous places and the word is going to change. It doesn't matter. It's just, it allows them to track potential organizations that have supported the line. So like one version is you type home to 741741. But I'm also familiar with Shanti Doss and her organization, Silence the Shame. Well, you can actually do silence 741741 and you'll see different versions. And it's literally just, it's just a tracking mechanism to see if people are associated with an organization. And the other kind of set of specialty lines is there is there are some crisis lines that are specifically run by the Veterans Administration that are specific, specifically to service vets. Those can be helpful because those are tied in to the system so they can actually connect people directly. And if you actually talk to one of the veterans crisis lines and you're a veteran and you're in the VA system, your um, people that take care of you will actually get notified. And then it'll actually be in your chart so people can can see that you called the crisis line. And then there is a another substance abuse line that if you type in, it'll come up for SAMHSA. So excellent. So we have organizations like NAMI and SAMHSA, and these are, you know, these chat lines, these tests. So, you know, literally potential help is no further than your fingertips. Now, another field that's emerging that I know that you're involved in and that people may need to know about is telepsychiatry. Tell us about telepsychiatry and how that the level of care that telepsychiatry offers. You know, you see, you know, we see the, you know, Olympic gold medalist, the famous swimmer who is, um, who is advocating for that. You have um, stars like Simone Biles, the famous gymnast, who's also speaking out about mental health and mental illness. You have the tennis player, player Naomi Osaka. So you have these big names and they're also, they're big advocates for this telepsychiatry and psychology. Well, one of the biggest things that comes out with all of these virtual platforms is the level of access. And to me, that's the game changer in it is that you don't have to deal with traffic. You don't have to deal with, do you have a car? How many buses it takes to get somewhere? If it's rush hour, any of that kind of thing, all you need is your computer, tablet, or phone to log into your appointment. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of having so many virtual platforms is just the ease of access. And then also, if you're someone that's on the move, that it doesn't matter if you're on a different side of the city or if you're traveling for a brief moment, you can still access everybody that you work with. 
it is a little bit of adjustment for some people, especially if they've done in-person services, because it does feel a little bit different if you're talking to someone like me through a screen like we're doing right now versus if we were in a room together. And there are times or instances, especially if people are really struggling, that in-person is probably preferred. So if people are in crisis or are potentially dangerous or feeling unsafe, naturally those are environments that are better suited for in-person. But for a lot of regular contacts, the great thing is these just allow a lot of different access points. And there are a lot of people that potentially, especially ironically, in some ways, there is a point where you feel like, well, if if you're busy and you're working and you're an executive, this is great. But the other end is it's, it's great for people that are working, that may work long hours, and the only time they may have to see you is their lunch hour, and they don't have time, they can't get back and forth, or the person that takes two or three buses to go to work and has no transportation, or doesn't have doesn't have money for Uber or Lyft, or may even live somewhere rural where there's not someone that you have access to all these people that may not be centered in your community. So I I really feel like overall, it's been an excellent change. And I do realize that for some people, it's a personal decision that they may feel more comfortable in person. And that's maybe what they pursue. But I think for a lot of people, this is just a lot more of a robust convenience. Um, and then the fact that since we're all spread out is you may have access to someone with a skill set different than who, someone, the person that may be in your community. So I actually fell in love with it. And I, I was one of those people originally that's like, eh, I'm <laughs> the energy in the room. I don't know if I like this. And um, I actually realized I, I really, I really loved it. I realized I could sense more energy through a screen than I originally thought I could. Um, and I'm also not seeing kids virtually as much because we used to say the saying with kids is that sometimes you want to see the corners of the room. And there's data you get, and I assume this happens in family medicine too, is there's time you get data from how someone is in the waiting room or in other spaces. Mm-hmm. And when you're virtual, you're not you're not getting those other spaces. But the flip side is, is, you'll see people's home environment. And a lot of times, most of us aren't doing in-home services. So you'll you'll see interactions and things you wouldn't typically see. Like I've seen patients, kids pop up and you see how they interact with their kids or you see their dogs and their pets or, or if they have a hard time sitting still, you'll notice they're walking around the house or they're walking outside. And it's things you may not necessarily even see in the office. I don't know if that's been your experience. Yes. Yes. Well, I've actually been dizzy and I'm like, I just wish this person would sit down. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> yes, I've had that. Yes. So uh, we have here from uh, Patricia in Monmouth County, New Jersey. There's a peer warm phone line. There's the number and there's also the Samson number. Thank you very much, Patricia. So this is what uh, Dr. Erica was talking about in terms of where, if you look specifically where you live, there are these um, helplines uh, available. So help close as your fingertips. Talk a little bit, please, about um, the stigma. People still attach 
a lot of stigma to you mental health and they, you know, and, and they shrink back. What are you doing and what can we all do to uncouple that? I feel like you are coming with all of the loaded questions today. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's give Dr. Carol points for, and we all know the stigma is there. I do think the stigma is better than it was, but for us to act like there is no stigma would be just having our heads in the clouds and visualizing the world we want. I do believe that there are places that are starting to change the conversation with there being more media personalities or people in the media talking about mental health concerns or their mental health treatment, um, and including the athletes you mentioned, Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, and Michael Phelps, but also people like, um, I can't, I'm like Charlemagne the God, and there have been numerous women, including Chrissy Teigen and other celebrities that have talked to also about their postpartum experiences. Um, you even, if you follow people like Brene Brown, and, and she talks about some of her mental health issues at times, is that you'll hear about all of it. And even Oprah talks about trauma, is that there's a conversation that's starting to happen because celebrities are having the conversation. And then also there are now television shows that have major themes of mental health. I won't talk about, I'm still not overall happy with how psychiatrists are portrayed on these shows. Not sexy. Not uh, not sexy. No, I mean, it's like we, we went from being totally disconnected and bonkers to these people that are have like the worst boundaries on the planet. So no, if you actually see one of us, it's not going to be like on TV. It's not because they don't, they don't act right. They do not act right on TV. But I, I do think what's happening is this shift that it's one of those things. It's almost like the more you talk about it, the more than people around you will tell you what's going on with them. Because it's like if someone opens a conversation like and they're talking with some people they know and they're like, yeah, I got a therapist. You'll be amazed about how many people around you be like, yeah, I got one, too. Because people don't always just talk about the fact of what's going on with them. And I feel like what the shift is starting to happen is, especially with the stress and strain of the pandemic, I feel like it's pushing mental health to a forefront where a lot of people weren't talking about it or they weren't concerned about it. And now it's at a point where it's really impacting people's overall capacity. So not just your emotionally capacity to deal with things, but it's it's pulling on people's mental and cognitive capacity to be able to manage tasks at home and tasks at work because their emotional capacity is drained. And I really feel like that's pushing people to have these conversations that they weren't used to. But I really feel like this, the stigma conversation is one that's going to continue for a while because people still don't totally understand what mental health and mental health treatment is. And, and I think when people are scared of something, then it starts to, it's easy to shift it or it turns into something else, kind of like the boogeyman. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Linda is saying, for those afraid to share with professionals, don't forget to communicate with pastors, friends, anyone who listen to get you through the crisis. And that can be very important to have a very good interconnected social web, right? That can definitely help it with is. mental health. That's one of the things that's missing that we were talking about at the top of the hour is that we don't have that social connectedness. There was a time where you had all of between 
the family, the people in your neighborhood that were like your friends, the church, how the schools were connected, everything was connected. Um, and unfortunately, people had become more and more isolated and family units had become isolated and people are human beings, are social creatures by nature, even if you're introverted, that there's some level of social connection that you yearn for and actually need. And that's one of the reasons I say one of the big things to do is even before you're struggling, it's always good to start identifying at least one safe person, like mm-hmm. equivalent of a lifeline on what was that? I forgot the TV show, but you want one, at least one safe person that you can talk to about your feelings. And it needs to be someone that will actually answer the phone because it doesn't matter for you to have a safe person that you've got to text three or four times saying, I actually have something I really need to talk to you. Please answer the phone. So you want someone that will actually answer mm-hmm. listen, um, and be non-judgmental. And the, the, the icing on the cake is someone that has enough um, fortitude to tell you if you need to do something with yourself. <laughs> yes, there you go. So that if it's a situation yeah. you're talking to them about something and they know you need some help, that they have, as they would say, the kahumnes to tell you about yourself that, you know, yeah. this is not a self-help situation. We need to work together to get you some help. Beautiful, beautiful. So we have some comments here. We want to welcome Brian. That's from Patricia. And so Patricia, she's so funny. You can handle it, Dr. Erica. Pull the power from your pearls, 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Go on with your awesome self, Dr. Erica. Beautiful. Yes, we hold on to the pearls in the morning. Yes, we do. I won't touch them, though. I'm a watching and a listening and a listening. So yeah, and people people are listening. I have just, you know, so so many questions. One more question, and then I'm gonna invite us all to do a little ah centering exercise together. So, so run it down. So let's go back. Who are the helping professionals that have that are licensed because people don't, you know, do, you know, do I go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist? So, so to get, break us down a little bit on that level. So let's refresh on those levels. Cause a lot of people don't know who they can reach out to in the professional community. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with what I am first. So I am a board certified psychiatrist being a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So they're either going to be an MD or a DO and we'll have done college four years of med school and a minimum of four years of residency. And then if we're subspecialists, we did some additional years. So for me, I actually did six years of training after I did four years of medical school. So kind of 10 years of medical training. Um, And that's one of the things that sets apart with a lot of different medical specialties that um, there are the, I don't want to say top tier, but there's that level of kind of also levels of education, the amount of education. So so sometimes that just is a little bit different. So we have a lot of education before we're even out there on our own. So we've been doing medicine in some form for 10, I was for 10 years before I was out on my own. So lots and lots of education. Now, one thing is sometimes people think that all psychiatrists do is give people medication and that's not actually all we do. We, we do do therapy. And I personally feel my mantra is minimal medication for maximum effect. I'm not big on giving people pills just to 
give them pills because sometimes people think if you see a psychiatrist, the only thing you can see a psychiatrist for is to get medicated. Um, the other thing that we are good at and is in our wheelhouse is because we did go to medical school and trained in those other specialties also, is that we are specifically trained to be able to recognize when something is showing up like mental health, but may not actually be a primary mental health illness. And the reason you need to know that is if the issue is your thyroid, well, there's no Prozac that's going to make a thyroid problem better. Mm. You know, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of medical crossover. Um, so we are trained to be able to look at it through a lens that we're also examining to make sure there's not another physical cause that's just kind of showing up like mental health. Then the next group of people that are traditional mental health care practitioners is people also will think of psychologists. And psychologists, the letters after their name may vary. That Most of the psychologists you'll interact with are going to most likely be PhDs or PsyDs. Um, but you do see some master's level psychologists doing therapy. Psychologists primarily will do psychotherapy, a wide, but that's a whole nother conversation of different types of psychotherapy. Um, but the thing that's pretty much just in their lane and no one else does it is psychological testing. So when you see those ink blots or you hear people talking about neuropsych testing and all of these tests like that, that's what psychologists do. They're the only specialty that actually does it. Um, so that I think that's something really important to know. And then there are other versions of counselors. So you have um, people that are licensed clinical counselors, but you also have licensed clinical social workers, or you may also see MSWs for masters in social work. And all of them primarily do psychotherapy. And and then you have the, I always kind of, there are these other people, <laughs> not in a bad way, but then you have nurse practitioners and PAs that kind of float and will do some prescribing. All right. And but those are kind of like just the major silos of us. See, so the major side, and, and what is this concept? There are different types of psychotherapy, but what's this concept about positive psychology, for example? Well, positive psychology centers around, and I, I feel like it's it's Dr. Carol's world <laughs> because it's literally an area of psychology that really is looking at positive thinking and, and ways to, to nurture, grow, groom, and understand what is involved in positive thinking. That's just how I would call it in simple terms, um, which is which is nice because it does give a framework. And a, a lot of these things, some of it is, it's not even about that all of these different principles are groundbreaking. Part of it is giving framework and language. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, Patricia's really enjoying this one. Is there a store where psychiatrists buy their couches? <laughs> my, my, my couch came from Crate and Barrel. <laughs> you know, so um, but, you I know, don't have a couch in office, But um, back in the day, the, the traditional couches, um, I think what was really confusing is people would think that all psychiatrists are analysts because what they would see on TV is traditional analysis. And that's when the ones you would see where the person would be laying on the couch, the psychiatrist would be sitting behind them and the person would just be talking. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and analysis is an excellent modality. Ironically, you won't hear about it as much because, um, number one, the field did do some shifts when it came to, since insurance bills better for medication management. It's one of the reasons you'll hear more about med management. But analysis, people would typically be going to see their analysts three to five times a week. They'd be in analysis all the time. Um, but it's an excellent modality. Uh, but most of us don't do it. It's a, it's another subspecialty training. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that that was the traditional old school couch where the person laid <laughs> laid down on the couch. Some people still have some couches in the office, but most of the time I'm sure their patients are not actually lying on the couches. They're sitting on the couch. Sitting on the couches. Yes. But that is the picture, the the patient lying down. Sometimes it would be a dark color and it would be like a velvet. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You know, so very, very interesting, interesting, interesting. I've just got such a, a plethora of questions, but before we do our little settling moment, this this is what my download this morning for you, Dr. Erica. So I'm ready. My, I'm yeah. bare feet on the ground. So I'm there. Ready. You go. Here you go. Put the feet on the ground. So you know, here we have people and there's stigma attached. Yes, Patricia, humor is a form of therapy. Laughter is amazing, excellent medicine. Absolutely. So. We've got, you know, we've got the stigma attached. People are working very, very hard to deal with the stigma. My former job, I was director of behavioral integrative services as a very large federally qualified healthcare center. And my job was to work with the providers. So work with the docs, family medicine and internal docs and the nurse practitioners to get them comfortable with mental health and mental health disorders and even doing some training with the SSIR classification of medications because so many of us, when you come to see a primary care doctor, we do something called you know the PHQ and there's a two, two question version and there's a nine question version. You get one yes on the two, you're supposed to go to the nine and then that gets documented in the patient's chart. Well, you know, there is, and what are you doing about that? Are you referring the patient? Are you starting the patient yourself on an antidepressant medication if you're dealing with a depression or a combination of depression, anxiety? And there was, a, so within the medical community itself, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of discomfort, a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, it was it was a big job and it was a lot of talking and it was very much needed. And I have a strong interest in mental health. So, you know, I did the psychiatry rotations. I did the psychopharmacology, perhaps because I was raised by a nurse who spent her career in psychiatric nursing. So, you know, sort of some home training coming through in, in the background. And I also have mental um, illness in my family. So a brother and a cousin in particular, my older half brother and a cousin who both diagnosed with schizophrenia, those more, you know, serious um, mental illnesses. So that being said, my download was, I see Dr. Erica creating a course to to train primary care nurse and nurse practitioners and PAs and the basics. What is it that we need to know to be comfortable since a lot of people we know are a falling through the cracks and 
the majority of them, if they if they have a relationship with a primary care professional, they they're they're coming to me. They're in front of my office, or they're in front of that PCP uh, physician's assistant, or that PCP nurse practitioner. Doctor Erica, are you up for that? Can, can you can you help us out here? <laughs> oh, look at her eyebrows. <laughs> We'll have to chat. We'll have to chat. Yes, I mean, we will have to chat. It's, it's because- a huge issue um, on, on a couple levels. One is naturally because sometimes, unfortunately, it's really easy to figure out how to go to the ER if you broke your leg or you had a heart attack. I have no idea why the mental health system itself to get into it is so complicated. My phone rings very frequently of people like, I'm looking for someone. Do you know someone? And um, I think some of it, even as other physicians, is people have difficulty figuring out how to find us. Um, So I feel like it's a multi-layered issue. One is how to get comfortable with the basics and the things that should that would be appropriate to treat in primary care. But I also think the other is is a kind of a training along the lines that people also do with people in the ministry of knowing when knowing when something is out of your wheelhouse. Because mm-hmm. there are some things that, unless it's an emergency, there's no reason a, a primary care should have to deal with that. Because that's like that's like asking me to determine someone's um, insulin regimen. it's it's not in my wheelhouse and then if I start reading some books I probably could survive it and the person would be alive but Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be done as well as if someone actually knew how to manage insulin I do bare bones insulin is not my jam diabetes is not my jam I will tell you what you should be eating and that you need to be listening to your, your nutritionist and to your doctor who's helping you with your diet to the beaties. Well, you know what? And you have the eight, you know, you have the agency you and you would do it and you would do it very calmly. No big deal. This is, you know, this is what you're dealing with here. You know, it may be a part of your depression because we can have, you know, an organically based depression that's, you know, coming from the body. But you would tell them you need to go see an endocrine. You need to go to your, you would refer them to your network that takes care. But I'm talking about the things that I was seeing with in the primary care world is, is that they would, the provider would almost panic. And I was like, no. Here's what you do. You don't feel comfortable. Here's the, you know, here's the the reference. Here's the referral. Unfortunately, again, because primary care, you know, it's like it's brought across, you know, so it's no little uh, something about about everything. And then when you need to refer for the deeper dive, you refer to the deeper dive. But they've now introduced this whole system where we have to screen for it. And so the patient expects at the at the very least that you would be able to take them into the first step. And so that's where I think the problem is. That's where I think the need is, is that, you know, you take them into the first step. So, you know, my, for, so for example, my other 
certification is in obesity medicine. A lot of people, you know, ah, you know, they don't have, you know, the clue to deal about that. But when I talk to primary care doctors, I say, here's the, the, the baseline level where you can take them. Mm -hmm. And then here's the line where you need to refer to someone who has deeper knowledge than you. And so I think, you know, therein lies the gap as to what's expected and actually now demanded for primary care uh, providers. And there's a gap in their comfort level, yet this is our charge and this is our responsibility. And I don't know. So that's the download. And I'm just, you know, being obedient to the download. I was supposed to deliver that message to you, Dr. Eric. Thank you. Thanks for the messages. You're welcome. And who knows, we'll talk more about this, you know, offline. But I mean, I think you bring up a huge skill, which is the skill to be able to be calm, even if you don't know every ounce of the answer. And I I think that's where um, it's a skill also in self-compassion, but compassion for other people. And it's not something just that we do in medicine, but there are times where something comes ahead of you, it may not necessarily be in your purview. And it's like the the portion they say when you're speaking your training is, I may not be sure about the answer. Let me look into that for you. Or, or let me look into how to get you to who can take care of you. And I, I think a huge part of it in, in all of these fields and all of these spaces, because there's so much going on in healthcare that someone shows up to me and they are having all these physical issues. Well, I still need to talk to them about it because out of a lot of times, a lot of the people that they see, I'm the one that actually spends the most time at one time. So I'm still having long conversations about what's going on with your CPAP. You know, even though I'm not a sleep doctor is, is getting a, a baseline comfort level, but also being able to calmly shift into that's a little bit past me, but, but let's see what we can do to help facilitate the help that you need. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. All right. So we're going to take our little centering moment. We're literally going to spend one minute doing this and then we're going to get right back in. We've got a, a, a question from the, from the audience as well. And yes, good morning, Christina and welcome. Miss you too, darling. Miss you too. So let's see. So like everyone, just go ahead and uncross your limbs and close your eyes. Just allow the shoulders to settle down. Adjust yourself so you feel comfortable in your body, in your body temple right now. Let's collectively take a deep cleansing breath in through your nose and let that breath out through your mouth. And notice, does this breath feel supportive to you? Ask yourself, does it feel supportive to me right now in this moment? And if we want to just tap into the whole cycle, get everything released as we breathe in, breathe in and imagine the word soft. And as you breathe out, imagine the word belly. So we breathe soft, belly, soft belly, soft belly. Beautiful, beautiful. One more deep cleansing breath and let's go ahead and open our eyes and let's jump right back in. But so I noticed that it was nice for me just to 
literally to notice my breath. Did you notice anything, Dr. Erica? Oh, yes. Now I feel all re-energized like I, like I had a smoothie and some caffeine. I'm ready. There you go. There you go. There you go. So here we go. So here's this question from Linda. Stigma in the Black community. So she wants to bring it down home. Bring it, bring it, bring it focus. Bring it focused. All right. Um, yes, it, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I believe one of the things and one of the reasons why a lot of us end up doing activities in the community outside of the walls of our office is because especially um, I'm, I have quite a few friends that were black psychiatrists or, or black psychologists, is that you end up having to do more outreach so that people can start understanding not only what your mental health is, what are signals you need help, why are there issues if you don't get help, and also what it's like. And let us let people know that we're actually out there because sometimes, especially if you're black, you may not necessarily feel comfortable talking about everything to someone else outside of your community. So there is stigma. It's one of the reasons why we're spending more time not only writing books, because I actually co-authored a book, Mind Matters, um, a resource guide to psychiatry for Black communities. But also you'll see people are going into barbershops and churches and other community environments other community organizations like Lynx, Jack and Jill, sororities, fraternities, all different kinds of places to try to get closer to our community to let people know that it's okay to get help and this is how you get it. Because I think the other thing is is the fear that's in between when you might notice something's wrong and how do you actually get to where you need to get. And there's a huge fear, one of the hugest stigmas in our community Um is this fear of privacy that the information that you tell someone will not be used for good, that that information will be told to some other agency. So we've dealt with people saying that they're afraid to talk to us because they think something will happen that'll affect their kids, them having custody of their children or the information just being used in a negative way. So some of it is just starting to learn what these processes are, what, even is HIPAA and the standards of privacy that we have to use that are legally mandated for us to use and for them to start seeing seeing us places. And it's one of the great things about social media is you can start seeing what some of us are like and the stereotypes or what people would initially think of when they see a psychiatrist or a therapist or a psychologist is not what most of us are, not our disposition, and it's not what most of us even look like. Wow. So thank you so much for your response. So this just brings me back to, um, there was a project, uh, it was actually in uh, 2012, and it was called the Race Card Project, and people had to come up with six words. And there was a resident physician, Dr. Celeste Green, who actually used her essay from the Race Card Project as part of her essay to get mm -hmm. into medical school. And she titled it, We Aren't All Strong Black Women. And I keep, this just keeps coming back to me. It keeps 
you know, resonating with me because I know, and I'm sure you've been called this. I've been called this. Oh, but you're so strong. You're a strong black woman. And on the one hand, it's supposed to be a compliment, but on the other hand, it has also come with a very high price to pay. And she says it just carries so much expectation being strong, Green Road. Why would we give her more pain medicine? She's strong. And don't we see this in hospitals? And this is a huge issue in the sickle cell anemia community. She doesn't need that grant or scholarship. She's strong. And these examples sound hyperbolic, but when we look at disparate health outcomes, pay gaps, reconciliation for our art, our advocacy, our intelligence, Black women continue to be overlooked. I think of a Black woman truly feels her most powerful and capable when she describes herself as strong, then I su fully support her existing in that space, Green wrote. I feel strong much more often now than in those moments when I wrote my six-word story. But strong Black woman can quickly change from an adornment to a burden. Too often, she wrote, it's an excuse to, to demand more of us at the expense of our own well-being and peace. I know I personally have found this to be more true more often than not. That just always touches me in my spirit. I just feel that in my soul when you read that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I, cause I know, you know, that, that trait, that characteristic has been weaponized against me in job situations. Well, and it's weaponized in so many different ways because it also gives this, it gives this, um, I can't say it's subconscious. Sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes it's subconscious. This message that Number one, it's not okay for you not to be okay. It gives it gives this message that you have to somehow be okay and be good all the time, no matter what is happening. It literally is a setup for everyone to have mental health issues because it's an unrealistic expectation. It's an unfair expectation. Yes. And then also it makes it more difficult for anyone to support you because they're not even looking for there to be an issue. So why do I need to support someone that's strong and has it together? They don't need any support. Yes, that is so true. That is so true. I know when I was working in education, I often I was involved and developed a whole program with the um, Maryland uh, school system for gifted and children, uh, uh, gifted and talented children. Because again, okay, so we're you were trying to shore up children with different kinds of uh, abilities. We're trying to shore up children with diagnoses, and oftentimes the the child who is considered strong, who is considered exceptional would be totally overlooked because they also have a certain set of special needs and it can, they can easily get lost in the sauce. So both ends of the spectrum. And we tend to, you know, try to, you know, shore up the end of the spectrum that we identify as, as lacking in a certain way. And that, you know, the strong ones, you know, need less. And that's not always true. And it sends a very powerful lifelong message that you don't, you don't get to, 
be sad. You don't get to be broken. You don't get to be lonely. You don't get to be in need. And you can spend a lifetime of having those needs not being met. So, you know, who do the strong ones turn to? And uh, yes, this, to disrupt that in childhood, I think is is very important. Well, listen, I can't believe it. We're just about upon the hour and a couple of things that I want to invite people to do. So, you know, now you're supposed to be doing this, right? Dr. Erica's Better the Podcast, Better the Podcast. I definitely want you to come on over to my podcast. You could go to Anchor FM or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Please subscribe and share. This is, if you want to know how to support two strong black women, this is a way that you could do it. It doesn't cost you a dime. It just means you're going to show up, you're going to subscribe, and you're going to tell people, you know, you want to listen to a point of view. If you just resonate with Dr. Erica and her sunshine, go ahead over and make sure that you do this. And make sure that you follow her on social media. And I'll be talking more about this next week. But for those of you that want to take a sneak preview, I'm doing a Mindset Mastery RX, a year-long online course, very, very reasonably priced. You can go check that out. You're going to get your weekly inspiration and uplift. It'll just drip into your email box on Sunday. And I know so many of you enjoy the Friday meditation series. So this is going to be a little something extra for those who've been asking me for more. And I was trying to figure out how to do more. There's just, you know, only one little old me, only one little old me. Listen, y'all, it is time to sign off. I'm going to ask Dr. Erica to meet me backstage in our green room. Thank you so much to my life partner and our producer, Mr. DM Jones. And let's have Kenny Brazil Hamilton get ready to play us out. Dr. Erica, it's better with Dr. Erica. Could you give everybody the last word of the day? The last word I'd say is, since we've been talking about all this wonderful world of mental health, is the word I give you is kind. Be kind to yourself. Give kind words to yourself because we make a priority to give kind words to others, but we're not always kind to ourselves. So I love it. Be kind to yourself. You love you. See you all next week with special guest, Dr. Veronica Stubbs, and another surprise. Greatness, greatness. No matter what people say, you're full of greatness. Time you opened up your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see you going through your paces. It's amazing. Weightless. No matter what people say, you're full of greatness. Time you open up your eyes, you were courageous. If only they could see it going through your paces It's amazing Weightless Matter what people say You're full of greatness Time you open up your eyes You were courageous If only they could see you going through your paces It's amazing